0: Good morning. That was my, yeah. And Michael and I, we, we go way back to where we were the weird guys in the back who were praying and crying and all that stuff. And, and we, just, we were just loving on Jesus and loving on each other and getting to know each other around by 04 or something like that. And uh, to see all this happening here, you have no idea. And just how much your friendship means to me, what God is doing here. A lot of my students here, I mean, they see if an here in the house, all right, yeah. right, and I uh, have my dear friend Matt Lockett with me. Um, he's from D.C. Please don't hold that against him, but he's, he's from, you know, <laughs> he's not from there, but he's been there for quite some time. But we have an amazing story we want to share with you. See a lot of good friends here, and uh, uh, and every time I go somewhere, with Matt, I have props with me. So I'm going to get my prop while you guys turn to John 17. Yeah, i make room for you. Some of y'all may have been wondering, what is that wonderful thing in the back there? So we'll get to that in just a second. All right. Thanks, bro. Um, John 17. The red letter stuff, right? And what's so powerful about this is Jesus' last prayer. We're going to use this as a launching pad off into what we're talking about today. <clears throat> John 17. Start at verse 17. Sanctify them in truth, thy word is truth. As thou didst send me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask in behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that the That they also may be in us, that the world may believe that thou didst send me. Now, if that one, he's going to restate it again. And the glory which thou hast given me, I have given to them, that they may be just as we are one. I in them, and thou in me, that they may be perfected in what? In unity. That the world may know that thou didst send me and didst love me even as thou didst love me. We have a video clip we want to play real quick for you, and then we'll dive off into this. It has a really a lot to do with what our, our message is and what we're carrying. It's powerful, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm actually one of those sons of former slaves that Dr. King talked about. And this kettle pot in my family actually comes from slaves on my father's side of the family. They're slaves in Lake Providence, Louisiana. And it's been passed down for several generations. It was used for cooking, it was used for washing clothes, but it was secretly used for prayer. It's this memorial stone that's been passed down in my family. And what you're gonna hear today is the crazy, just powerful way that God connects us all together. Matter of fact, I don't think it's a mistake that the Kettle and my family, that were slaves there in late Providence, Louisiana, because Providence is the one who brought all of us here. Matter of fact, the Puritans used to call God just that, Providence. Quick definition for Providence, according to Nelson's uh, dictionary, Bible Dictionary, is Providence is the continuous activity of God by which he preserves and governs. It's the way in which God looks over seemingly insignificant things and apparent accidents. And that's what you're going to hear today. I love what the Archbishop of Canterbury used to say. He said, you know, when I pray, the coincidences happen. But when I stop praying, the coincidences stop. You're going to hear in this story crazy, uncoincidental coincidences where God providentially led us together primarily to pray for revival in this nation and to bring healing and see, wrong things get made right on so many different levels. So I just want to share you just just, with you, just real brief a little bit of my story. Now, honestly, I hadn't thought much about this pot until, um, you know, God began to break my heart for revival in America. And uh, I was praying and I felt the Lord leading me into an extended time of prayer. I'm actually from this area. I see a lot of my old friends I used to pray with like 20 years ago from the Euless uh, area. Uh, lived in Fort Worth, <clears throat> but while I was there, um, God broke my offer revival. I was reading a little book by Bill Bright, and in that book, he said, "God, give me two million people who will do a forty-day fast for America." So God, make me an answer to that man's prayer. So I was just a businessman doing what I do, uh, uh, doing what I was doing back then. So go to this fast. The first day of the fast, somebody spray painted my neighbor's car in my neighborhood. Yeah, and so. I thought, well, God, what do you want me to do? He said, begin prayer walking your neighborhood. How many of you prayer walk your neighborhoods? All right, if you don't, start. Because powerful things begin to happen, man. I started prayer walking my neighborhood, and next thing I know, I was sharing the gospel with people. I didn't know. I got a chance to pray for people who were sick. I saw folks here. But deeper than that, God broke my heart for revival in America. I would just walk and weep and pray for revival. I would get up early in the morning and go late at night because I would cry so hard. I didn't want people that think, yeah. You know, Who's that weird black guy just walking around the neighborhood? You know, (laughs) (laughs) he's that guy, right? (laughs) So I'm doing that, but little did I know God was connecting me to some unfinished business, right? Uh, Ephesians two and ten, powerful verse of scripture where we see in the New Testament we talk about providence. That we are God's workmanship, and we're walking out the works that he prepared beforehand for us to, to walk in. That word workmanship is the word poema. Everybody say poema. Poema, right? Now, you hear the word poem in that, right? So, thinking about it. You're God's poem. You're God's song. But deeper than that, what poema represents is the, po- po- the word poema was specifically set apart for somebody who was a skilled tailor and a fabric maker. Right? In other words, God has a tailor-made purpose and plan for everyone. And he's weaving something together. Now, we don't understand what's going on. You know, you see the weaving going on in your life, and sometimes you feel God poking you along the way. Just know you're just looking at one side of the tapestry. Sometimes he'll turn around so you can see the beautiful thing he's working on. All right? So we're all God's workmanship. So I began to understand that. And uh, I remember this little poem by Elizabeth Barrett Browning, which kind of helped me understand it a little bit more. She has this part in a poem where she says, Earth is crowned with heaven, and every common bush is a fire with God. But only those who see take off their shoes. The rest just sit around and pluck blackberries. Earth crowned with heaven. In other words, God is in our midst. But only those who see take off their shoes. The rest just sit around and pluck blackberries. My prayer has been, God, please don't let me miss the providential moments in my midst. Because I don't want to spend my days just sitting around plucking blackberries. We are in a providential moment right now where God is beckoning us, I believe, back to the upper room. I don't think it's a mistake that we're here today. I feel like the message that God has given us today is not just for this city, this region. It's for the whole nation. God is calling the church back to the upper room. And you'll understand why in the, just a little bit. So, I decided to do that, do that fast and... Uh, After the fast, I went to this little prayer meeting in Washington, D.C. called The Call. Like 400,000 people show up. I didn't know anybody there. Shortly after that, I find out there's another prayer meeting in Colorado Springs, and there are these people there praying, and I didn't know any of them, but I felt like I really needed to go there because a lot of the people who were at that prayer meeting in in D.C. were there. So I I go to this prayer meeting, and uh, there's this little lady named Cindy Jacobs, and she's praying for a man named Dutch Sheets. It's always the usual suspects, right? <laughs> and she st- calls up another young man named Billy Olson. I didn't know any of these folks at the time. And she starts praying for him, and, um, and then she starts praying and prophesying over him that they would go to Williamsburg, Virginia, and do prayer and revival meetings. She, she stops. She says, hold on, there's something to this, because Dutch, his real name is William. Of course, Billy, his real name is William. And here we are talking about them going to Williamsburg. Does anybody know what William means? And I'm in the back, and I just kind of blurred out and said, yes, it means noble spirit, resolute protector. She said, who said that? I was like, oh. ugh. <laughs> so I kind of poked my hand up a little bit, and she said, you, you, William too, aren't you? I said, yes, ma'am. She said, come up here. She said, then she said, it's too white up here anyway. Come on down. <laughs> <laughs> but when, we, when I come down with William Dutch Season, William and me, William III, when the three of us get connected together, the spirit of God falls on all three of us. We begin weeping over each other, never met each other before. Then Dutch looks at me with tears in his eyes and says, you know what? When we do this prayer gathering in Williamsburg, I think you're supposed to come with us. Now, honestly, I thought, okay, this would be like church camp or something, right? We're going to exchange phone numbers and we'll never hear from each other again. <laughs> but little that I know, Mr. Poema was taking out his needle. he was weaving something together, connecting us together and also connecting us to some unfinished business. And so I'm just like. God, is this really you? I need, I need confirmation. So I open my Bible, and coincidentally, co- 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 not, not my Bible, but my encyclopedia. I get up the encyclopedia. The Lord says, look up Williamsburg, Virginia, the encyclopedia. I want to confirm this to you. So I get my encyclopedia, look up Williamsburg, Virginia, and it Said that Williamsburg, Virginia was named after William III of England. I thought, that's a nice little dink, right? Then I flip over and look up William III of England in the encyclopedia, and it says, and the Dutch chose William III to be a leader. So I thought, here's this man named Dutch He's asking me, William III, to go, go to Williamsburg. I'm thinking, either this is God or a really bad joke, right? <laughs> so I sent an email to Dutch, and he sends me one back, and he said, you know, we don't want to go just to Williamsburg. We're thinking, we'll go to Williamsburg, Virginia, Jamestown, all that Virginia area, and then we'll expand it and go to all these places where revival broke out in New England and the Northeast. He said, I'll send out the names of the cities we want to go to. And this is where it starts to get even crazier. Because he sends me all the names of the cities he wanted to go to, and when he sends them to me, without him knowing it, all of them, except for about two, were names of the streets of my neighborhood that I've been prayer walking. For example, we went to Jamestown, the original settlement, Jamestown Court was across the street from me. Went to Princeton University. Princeton Street was two streets behind me. Went to Hanover, New Hampshire. Hanover Street was next to Princeton Street. Went to, went to Dartmouth University. Dartmouth Court was four streets down. Went to uh, New Haven, Connecticut. New Haven Court was one street down on the left. Literally, I could go on. Went to Gettysburg. Gettysburg Street was around the corner from me. Went to, to the Chesapeake Bay, and I lived on Chesapeake Street. I said, Lord, what was what, the deal with this? Well, see, what's the symbolism? Well, It turns out in 1619, that's when the Dutch first brought the first slaves into America. And William III, that king from England, was the first king from England to send slave ships into America. God was saying, I want to use your relationship to show that I want to reverse the effects of yesterday's pain. Acts 17, 26 to 27, where it says, God has made from one blood many nations and determined the bounds of our habitation time before him, that we may seek after God and find them, though he be not far from every one of us. So he knows providentially. He providentially places us in the families we're born into, the skin color that we are. And he's weaving something powerful together and connecting us all together because he's the God of providence. And the thing that connected us together was this teaching that Dutch had on synergy. Now synergy is when you take two separate things and you connect them together, they don't create an additional power but a multiplicity of power, right? Scientists say if you take two horses and if you put them together it creates so much exponential power it's as if what? A third invisible horse has been added. But spiritually we know that one could put a thousand in flight and two could put what? Ten thousand in flight. That's synergy. So think about it. We start getting all this agreement in prayer between red, yellow, black, and white. We start getting agreement in prayer between old and young. Male and female, we can see the synergistic exponential release in the power of prayer, like we've never seen before. Right? Psalm one thirty three, when it says, "How good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together," and what unity! It's like the anointing oil flowing from Aaron's head onto his beard and onto his robe. And then it says, "For there," everybody say there, yeah. "the Lord commanded the blessing." Listen, God's looking for a place called there. It's the place where we drop our agendas and come together and believe. And we use Psalm 133 a lot to talk about working together, but primarily that work is the work of prayer and intercession. Why do I say that? Because Aaron was a high priest, All right? So he's talking about us being united in the place of prayer. But said something that was really powerful in that. He said, not only can you agree in prayer with the person sitting next to you, you can also agree in prayer with a generation behind you. Talked about how he's at his alma mater, Christ for the Nations. He's leading the student body in prayer and The Lord spoke to him and said, I want you to come in agreement with the prayer of the founder of the school, Gordon Lindsay. And he said, okay, God, Gordon Lindsay's been dead for more than 30 years, and I know you're not talking to the dead. Is this really you? And then he realized God wasn't talking about agreeing with him. He was saying, agree with his prayers. And the Lord said to him, his prayers aren't dead. They're still alive before my throne. There are things I promised this man in prayer that I want to release right now because... I need this generation to come in agreement with that generation. I want to release the synergy of the ages. So you think about it. God starts something in one generation, and he'll complete it exponentially through future generations to come. So all of us here, we have unfinished business. Hebrews 11, 39 and 40 says it like this. talking about the heroes of faith. All these by faith. They were approved for their faith, but they did not receive what was promised so that apart from us, they wouldn't be made perfect without us. In other words, there's a whole company of people looking over the balcony of heaven saying, hey, Michael Miller, hey, Will Ford, don't mess this thing up because God started something in us that he wants to complete exponentially to you. Jesus said it best when he said, what greater works than these are you going to do because I'm going to the Father. And I would submit to you that John 17 is the New Testament equivalent of Psalm 133. Because he's asking us to be in agreement with what he started with those who had gone before us, who were the apostles. That they would all be one, right? So if you look at Psalm 133, it's not, just, not just about us connecting in agreement with what God started in our today. It's also about agreeing with what God started in our yesterday. Why do I say that? Well, it turns out that that one particular garment that was on the priest's body was passed down to the next high priest. Right? So we don't understand. And see, when we anoint somebody today, we put a little oil on our finger and we pop them on the forehead and send them on the way, right? That's not how they did it back then. They would take a horn full of oil, scholars say up to a gallon of oil, and they would pour it all over that high priest's head. And it would drip from his head onto his beard, listen, onto his robe. Listen, that robe was then passed down to the next high priest. Then he received an anointing to make an impact for us today. But as that oil dripped down, it mingled with the anointing from the past on that same robe. Then that same robe is passed down to the next high priest. In other words, there's supposed to be this momentum-building anointing that goes from generation to generation to generation, the saturation of the ages. Everybody's looking for the next, you know, powerful next catchphrase, some new this or that in the body of Christ. God's not looking for originality. You know what he's looking for? He's looking for a successor. If he can find a successor, he'll release a double portion of anointing on them that was so powerful, it not only makes them relevant and impactful for their generation, but makes them a springboard for future generations to come. So, I began to understand that. I remember this pot in my family, and I began to weep. Like I said, it was used by my slave forefathers. They used it for cooking, they used it for washing clothes, but secretly, they used it for prayer. There in Lake Providence, Louisiana, my slave forefathers were there, and the story's been passed down for generations on. with this part that they were owned by a slave master who would beat them for any reason, and praying was one of them. Now, the irony is that back then they wanted slaves to be Christians. If you study this out in history, they wanted to be Christians because they knew that Christian slaves made better workers. But they would pervert the gospel and say, slaves, be obedient to your masters if you want to go to heaven. Now, we know we're saved by grace through faith, not by works. It's the gift of God so that no one should boast, right? But it was easy to teach slaves that back then because it was against the law for slaves to read and write, and it was against the law for anybody to teach them how to read and write. So if this man heard them praying, he would beat them. Why? Because he didn't want them to get any kind of sense of hope for freedom. To give you an example of how cruel he was, the story is passed down about a great uncle of ours who went fishing without asking on this plantation. So the slave master, I guess the overseer, decided to make an example out of him. So they take him and strap him to a tree, a slave forefather to a tree, and put both arms and legs around either side of that tree. They take a leather strap that is shredded and has rocks and nails and glass attached to it. The slaves back then called it the cat of 9 tails And they beat this slave forefather of ours until all the flesh was pulled out of his back. And the family, in an effort to save his life, decided to put... You know, grease a lard on a sheet, and they wrapped it around his body to stop the flow of the blood. They put the grease on there so it wouldn't stick to his exposed skin on his back. But in spite of their efforts and because of this man's cruelty, he bled to death and died. And that's how cruel they were in Lake Providence, Louisiana. When it came to slavery, Louisiana was the worst places to be a slave. So the beautiful thing is this, is that. In spite of this man's cruelty and because of their love for Jesus, they prayed anyway. What they would do is they would go into a barn late at night on this plantation to keep their prayer meeting secret. And to keep it from being heard, they took this pot. This is the very pot that they use, And they would prop it up with rocks so it would be suspended off the ground about an inch or two. They put one here and one there by three or four rocks to prop it up, so it'd be suspended off the ground about an inch or two. They're there where they flat on the ground or prostrate, prostrate themselves on the ground and put their lips in between the opening between the ground and the kettle, so that the kettle muffled their voices as they prayed through the night. And the story that was passed down with this pot is this is that they didn't think they would see freedom time, so they prayed for the freedom of their children in the next generation. One day, freedom comes. This young teenage girl decides to keep this pot and that story in our family. Now, why would she do that? She's probably thinking about all those who are dead and gone, who risk their lives to pray for her and others. She's probably thinking about all those who are told to enjoy the freedom she's about to embrace. So she keeps this pot and that story in our family, and she passed it on to her daughter, Harriet Lockett. Harriet Lockett passed it on to Noah Lockett. Noah Lockett passed it on to William Fort Sr., who passed it on to William Ford Jr., who then gave it to me, William Ford III. So I'm there in this conference, bawling my eyes out in the first five minutes of the message, because I'm thinking about the heart that God has given me for the next generation. thinking about he's made me a spiritual father and mentor the youth even back then. I'm thinking about the heart he's given me for revival and spiritual awakening. I'm thinking about our inner cities and, how, uh, the, the, and all that's going on in our nation with all the, the racial tension. Even back then, I'm thinking, my God, I could come in agreement with the prayers of my forefathers for the freedom of this next generation. I thought about the exponential results that could be released and created from that shared that with Dutch. He said, you know, I was praying for confirmation about our gathering. and so God, you really want me to take a 200-year-old cast iron kettle pot around the country to use it to represent the prayer bowls in heaven? Revelation 5 and 8 says that every time we pray, it's collected in golden bowls in heaven, not plastic bowls, not wooden bowls. Golden bowls because that's how precious your prayers are to God. Revelation 5 and 8, there's a prayer bowl over your family. There is a prayer bow over this city. There is a prayer bow over this state and over this nation. There's a prayer bow over America. So, Dutch said this to me. He said, "Will wouldn't it be just like God in his justice and irony that he used the prayers of a slave generation to free a nation up for revival again? See, I'm glad he said generation, because see, it wasn't just black Christian slaves back then. There were white Christian abolitionists who... If any person was a slave, was a Christian, then that person was their brother. They laid their lives down for, the, for each other. Many of them had their houses burned. They were shot, killed, and lynched because they chose to suffer with the people of God rather than compromise and wink at slavery. So Dutch is thinking through that, and he opens up his Bible. It falls open to Zechariah 14 and 20, part B of that verse says, and the cooking pots in the house of the Lord shall so be like the bowls before the altar. So that's what I'm saying. See, the thing is, because my ancestors were Christians, I have a connection to them. they were Muslims or Buddhists. I can have no connection to that part or his history. But listen, because they were Christians, none of these my ancestors and forefathers, they're yours too. Those Christian abolitionists back then knew that. Many of them had their houses burned. They were shot, killed, and lynched because they chose to suffer with the people of God rather than compromise and weaken slavery. And so... Listen, I'm just as much a spiritual son of Jonathan Edwards and Charles Finney and, and, and the apostles as you are Martin Luther King and William Seymour. And when we come together in that kind of union agreement, listen, something powerful happens. The oil begins to flow. Anointings begin to mingle. God finds a landing strip for the commanded blessing to follow. So, praying along this, this way, I'm beginning to think, man, it was the prayers of that godly remnant that prayed in the being the first and the second great awakening. It was the prayers of black Christian slaves and white Christian abolitionists that prayed in the being the first and the second great awakening. It's blown away by that. See, back then they had this Supreme Court law back then called Dred Scott which said that slaves had no rights, even in the courtroom. But because God sent revival, the thing that everybody thought was set a law was broken in the hearts of people around the country, and eventually that law had no hold on the rest of culture. So listen, the same God who broke the power of Dred Scott, he can break the power of Roe v. Wade. He can break the power of everything else that's going on in this nation with unjust decrees. He can release healing in the inner city. He can break the power of systemic poverty. He can, he's just looking for a generation of people who will drop their agendas and come together and believe. Lord broke my heart over this thing in prayer one day. I was praying, and the Lord said, William, if I heard the silent whispers of slaves underneath kettle pots, how much more so do I hear the silent screams of babies being aborted in this nation? And I began to see that we're all created. The scholars call it the They day, We're all created in the image of God. And I began to see how the shedding of innocent blood of any kind breaks his heart. Listen, the same God who wept over Slaves being beat to death. The same God, he's the same God who weeps over what's happening in the inner city with shootings. He's the same God who wept over the five police officers that were shot and killed in Dallas. And he's the same God who weeps over the shedding of innocent blood from the womb. Listen, he's concerned about it all. And he showed me how he wanted us all to come together, to be connected, to be a part of a new civil rights movement that included everybody. He gave me this dream. I had a dream about the dreamer, Martin Luther King. (laughs) It's interesting because when I had this dream, it was right before I was going to, the night before I was going to speak at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church with my friend Lou Engle. Dexter Avenue Baptist Church is the place where the civil rights movement got started, and Dr. King used to be a preacher at that church. But the night before, I had this dream, and in the dream, Lou and I are on our way to Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, but we can't get there until we first go pick up Dr. King. (laughs) Listen, there's some things we need to pick up from the past and lessons we need to learn from the past in order for us to move forward. I think yesterday was a grand example of that. So anyway, in this dream, we're going to Dexter Avenue Baptist Church. But before we get there, we go to by this house and to pick up Dr. King. And in the dream, he's alive. Of course, it's a dream, right? But he comes out, and he has this huge white duffel bag with black handles on it. And he starts emptying all this dark garbage out of the duffel bag that he throws the bag down violently to come and get into this vehicle with us. And in the dream, I thought to myself, man, you know, that bag could make a nice souvenir. <laughs> Which shows you how carnal I am, <laughs> even in my dreams. <laughs> I'm thinking, I went to Morehouse College, he went to Morehouse College, the bag could make a nice souvenir. <laughs> so I go to pick up the bag, but before I could ever touch it, Dr. King grabs him on my shoulders and he says, no, do not go back and pick that up. And he starts telling me what I need to do to heal the race issue in America. And I begin weeping in the dream. I go in intercession, in the dream, and when I wake up, my pillow is soaked with tears. I've been weeping through the night and didn't even realize it. I shared it with my friend Lou Engel. He begins to weep. We're like, what is the interpretation? We didn't know what the interpretation was. I said, God, what what was it that he said to me? And the Lord said to me, your interpretation is in the white bag with the black handles. Then I realized the black handles represented how my generation of blacks and myself had handled our white baggage. God was saying, William, you've been carrying it for way too long. The Lord was saying, get rid of your bitterness. Get rid of your resentment. Get rid of your unforgiveness. Get rid of guilt manipulation. Get rid of your white baggage so we can all get in a new vehicle that can bring revival and justice for everybody. So the question for all of us today is this, what color is your baggage? Get rid of it because we need each other. Listen, because only a united church can heal a divided nation. So after having that dream, Lou said, Will, I want you to share this dream and this message. and Bring the kettle. January 17, 2005, is going to be Martin Luther King Celebration Day in Washington, D.C. And I want you to share this message there. But little did I know that Mr. Poema was bringing out his needle and he was connecting me to unfinished business. I want to bring up my friend, Matt Lockett. Matt, come up. Please share.
1: Thank you. Good morning. Just to get you guys ready, I am going to show some things here as I share. So I think there was a Something that we're gonna put on the screen here in a few minutes, but not yet. Oh, the suspense. You guys like tag team preaching? It's fun. So Will just shared his uh, personal story and he brought you up to this one particular day. It's January 17th, 2005. And it was Martin Luther King Celebration Day. But I want you to hit pause right there for just a minute. And I wanna go back exactly one year. One year to the day, in fact, January 17th, 2004, was the day that my dad passed away. It was a tragic day for me personally. Uh, we weren't anticipating that, it was a, it was a surprise. And um, one of the things that happened as a result, maybe some of you can relate to this. Now there's a lot of young people in the room, so this might be new to you, but, but when you lose a parent, when the patriarch or the matriarch of the family passes on, You get confronted with the reality of something. And the question is this, is what is the story that you're now going to carry forward? What is the story that you're going to tell? You now become the steward of that story. So maybe mom and dad were the ones that told you the stories of the family as you were growing up. Now they're gone. Now you have that responsibility. So the question is, what is the story that you're going to tell? Well, that was actually kind of a bitter point for me, personal uh, uh, point of sorrow, because we didn't really know much about our family. And I know this was actually a, a point of pain for my dad. He didn't make much of it. But, you know, when I had asked as a child about where we came from, you know, who were we? Who were the lockets? He didn't really know. In fact, no one in our family really knew. Now, let me set the stage here for a little bit. My dad was one of 16 siblings. This is a big family, and nobody knew uh, really that much about where we came from. We couldn't get beyond my dad's grandfather. And so somewhere along the way, the story just ceased. The oral history of our family failed, and so my dad didn't have anything to tell me about where we came from. And, And the best we could figure out is we were a bunch of mutts from Kentucky. My dad would actually say that, and he would kind of make a joke out of it, but I know it was a pain in his heart as well. And so dad passed away unexpectedly, and when you go through something like that, you start asking the real hard questions of life. And and some of you have gone through this, but you start asking those honest questions like, why am I here? What am I supposed to be doing with my life? Who am I? And those are big questions, but those are real questions because... I'm a Christian I'm a believer that means that I don't think I'm I'm here by accident you're not an accident I believe that there's meaning in my life there's meaning in your life and so you get in these soul-searching moments and you ask those difficult questions and God wants you to ask that question do you know that God wants you to ask who am I and why am I here You're here for his glory, but it also, the word says that he's prepared things in advance for you to do. You think about that? There are works that he has prepared in advance, in advance of what? In advance of you getting on the scene. God had a dream about you long ago and he wrapped flesh and bone around that and that's you. You are the dream of God. To do what he has dreamed of at this moment in time right now, this is just the moment of your arrival. So you got to ask those hard questions. I was asking those questions. and I, I had a, a personal goal. I, I just kind of had, had made a determination, I'm going to be the one to get to breakthrough, to get the breakthrough on our family tree. The genealogy became very important to me, and, and, and I knew that no one in our family had ever been able to figure it out because there had been, you know, just different things that had happened like courthouse fires things where the records had been lost, the oral history had failed, and so I decided I was gonna get the breakthrough. And I spent the summer of 2004 trying to research and dig, and guess what I found out? Nothing. Laid a big fat goose egg. And I finished the summer of 2004 more frustrated than I had begun because I couldn't find anything out. And it was during that time of soul searching that I had a dream. Now, we'll talk a little bit about dreams. I'm going to talk about dreams. Do we have any dreamers in the room? Okay, a few. So that means there's people in here that believe that you can go to sleep and God will talk to you and pizza doesn't get all the credit, right? (laughs) Okay, so we're on the same page. So it was in this moment, this kind of this low point emotionally for me. I had a dream one night. And um, in the dream, the Lord talked to me about the ending of abortion in America And how he was going to do that through day and night prayer. Now, I know that was God because I didn't care about abortion. I didn't want to know anything about abortion. I was content to just let those guys over there deal with it. I didn't want to know anything about it. It wasn't something that I knew anything about. I didn't want to know about it. And so uh, this dream came from somewhere else. It didn't just bubble up from something I knew. And it was in that moment, actually through that dream, God initiated something in my heart. He was inviting me into his heart. And I was previously unaware of it. Just because I didn't know about it didn't mean it wasn't important to him. You understand what I'm saying? And so in this dream, I met a man named Lou Engle. Do you guys know who Lou Engle is? we Will talked about him a little bit. Some of you know him. I met Lou Engle in my dream, but I didn't know Lou Engle. And in the dream, I talked to him. And, and, and this dream, I don't have time to go into it now, but it, it rattled me, it, 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 it shook me. I had this, this, uh, this undeniable feeling that I had to do something about it. God was asking me, inviting me to do something about this dream. And so I kind of started looking around. I found out there was a guy named Lou Engle and he was doing this prayer thing. And, and uh, through a friend of a friend of a friend, I called someone who actually worked with him. And I said, I don't know you and you don't know me. This is the weirdest cold call ever. Not telemarketing. <laughs> I said, I don't know you and you don't know me, but I had a dream. And he goes, really, what was your dream? Totally took me seriously. I wasn't used to that. <laughs> Started talking about dreams and people are like, ooh. <laughs> so I tell him the dream. And he goes, this is fascinating. You've just dreamt exactly what the Lord's sending us to do. We're going to Washington, D.C. with this group of young people to contend in prayer for the ending of abortion. Now, what do you do with that? God, the, 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 the author, the poema, right? Taylor is, is weaving something very intricate in that moment. And so he said this to me. He said, we're gonna do a, this gathering in January. I think maybe you should come. God might have something for you there. So I was praying about whether or not uh, I should go. I'm looking for a confirmation. Will it share that too. You know, I need a confirmation You know, is this God or is this a bad joke? And one night I was in the kitchen and uh, I, I, uh, my my oldest daughter, she was 10 years old at the time, she walks into the kitchen and she's just got this look on her face. She's stunned. And I asked her what was wrong. and She said, dad, I was, I was reading to my younger brothers this, this book. And I think I found something that's important. And I said, well, what is it, honey? And she said, well, it's this Dr. Seuss book called Horton Hears a Who. And I, I, you know, I hadn't read that recently. And uh, we all know that book, right? <laughs> and so she opens it to the line that we're so familiar with, that a person's a person no matter how small. God was now speaking to my 10-year-old daughter. My wife was pregnant at the time and couldn't travel, but I decided I was going to go to Washington, D.C., and I'm going to take my 10-year-old daughter with me. I didn't know at the moment that God was actually, he was beginning to, to set the stage for a multi-generational momentum building movement, OK, as Will was talking about. So I had done a little research and I got my hands on a recording of Lou Engle preaching and and. I was listening to it one night and I don't remember what the message was, but he, he said this one line, I want to put it on the screen and show it to you. He said this one line and it, it marked me, it stuck with me. He said this, what moves you? What is your passion? Stay close to the burning bush in your life. What burns in you and never goes out, when you find something like that, draw close to it and you'll hear your name called. Something about that, it just, it pierced my heart. Yeah, take pictures, it's great. So you can put it, journal it later. And uh, it pierced my heart. And so, of course, I had gone through this painful year. God, who am I? What am I supposed to be doing? I went to Washington DC in January of 2005 with one prayer. For months I had been praying, God, I wanna hear my name called. So I show up in Washington, D.C. I don't have a clue what's going on. Guys, look, I didn't, I didn't know there was a thing called a prayer movement. I just came from regular old church, right? We love Jesus. If I show up, it's like a solemn assembly, whatever that is, and it's outside, and the wind chill is 20 degrees below zero that day. Why are we doing this? Why do we have to do this for eight hours? But we gathered on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, right there in the shadow of Lincoln and and the emancipator, the great emancipator. And we did this solemn assembly there and we prayed for eight hours outside that day. And um, uh, uh, go ahead and go to the next picture here. I'll show you a picture. I took this that day. I, I was such a spectator. I didn't know what was going on. So I just started taking pictures, trying to document it. And so this is just a little piece of the picture here where you can see the Lincoln Memorial in the background. And. There's Lou Engle kind of off on the one, the the right third of the image. But if you see the hand with the blue sleeve stretched up, follow it up to the fingertips and you'll see Will Ford. So I met Will Ford for the first time on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. And so we prayed that day, we prayed for revival, we prayed for the ending of abortion in America. And uh, that night, they were, the gathering was continuing, and so I, I went to the church that night with my 10-year-old daughter, and Will was preaching, and he rolls out the kettle. And Lou had asked him to come and share the story that, you've already, that you just heard about the kettle and the, the, the ancestry of his slaves who prayed for freedom in the next generation. And, and I'm listening to this story. Maybe you felt like this today a little bit. I don't know, but I'm listening to the story. I'd come through the most probably the most painful year of my life. Not, not having any idea where our family came from, not understanding our heritage, and it's exactly one year to the day that my dad had died. And Will is sharing the story of the kettle, and he's talking about this rich spiritual heritage of his ancestors praying for this nation. And I'm listening to it, and it's, and it's painful to hear. And let's just get real honest. Is that okay? By all rights, I should know who I am, and he shouldn't. These are the kinds of things that I I was being confronted with. And yet I'm sitting here and I have no idea where my family had come from. And this man had this rich spiritual heritage. And I just began to weep. And then he tells the part of the story that was so stunning. He said that this kettle was handed down to Harriet Lockett, who handed it down to Nora Lockett, to Wilford Sr., Wilford Jr., to Wilford III, the man standing on the stage. And my daughter turns to me and says, he just said our name. Now, think about it. For months, I had one prayer. God, I want to hear my name called. My 10 year old daughter turns, says he just said our name. So I went up to Will after the meeting, introduced myself. Well, I've never met one of you guys before. <laughs> never met a locket. And so we talked and and, you know, he asked me, you know, where are your lockets from? And I said, well, we don't know. We think Kentucky. He said, well, our lockets were down in Louisiana. And he says, how did you spell it with one T or two? And we spelled it with two. And he's like, oh, well, our locket spelled it with one. And we just thought it was an amazing coincidence. But it was enough that it, it, it connected us. And we began to build relationship. And we became, cov- became covenant brothers. And for 10, 12 years now, we've, been, we've just bound ourselves together as covenant brothers. Running together, living life together, just trying to love each other well. He loves my family. I love his family. We support each other. And we're just contending for the destiny of this nation together. I think that's kind of how we're supposed to do things. So now, fast forward. I answered a call to be a missionary, and I moved to Washington, D.C., and I joined with Lou Engel and this team. And we're serving full-time. I've now been in D.C. for over 12 years, contending in prayer right on Capitol Hill. You guys should come to Capitol Hill. Come on. I tell everybody to come to Capitol Hill. All the demons do. Y'all should come, too. It's great, we'll have a party. But we have this house of prayer called the Justice House of Prayer. And at the very beginning of J-Hop, there was a dream that really marked our hearts, marked our movement, helped shape and frame the kinds of prayers that we pray. And I'll share this dream. It's very important to the story. In the dream, is this my water or yours? We're brothers, right? Covenant brothers, (laughs) Um, in the dream, the, the dreamer is standing in a long hallway that's lined with courtrooms all the way down. And the voice of the Lord speaks in the dream and says, either you deal with Roe v. Wade in your courts, or I will deal with it in mine. And at the end of this long hall, there's a huge courtroom. And on the door, it says Appomattox Courthouse. Does that ring a bell? Does anybody? All right, see, I'm gonna, I always have to do American History 101. So uh, at the, uh, it, it's, it's April of 1865. America's been in a civil war for a number of years, five years, and Lee, here we are talking about General Lee. That's, this message, guys, is so timely right now with what's happening in Charlottesville, Virginia. The last couple of days, General Lee and the Confederate Army is under siege in Richmond, Virginia, and in Petersburg. And the, the Union Army breaks through, and he begins to retreat across the state of Virginia. Very close to Charlottesville, in fact. Just south of Charlottesville. And he gets to a place called Sailor's Creek. And it's there that he fights the last battle on April 6th, 1865. The Union Army Uh, overcomes them, and they, they abandoned all of their equipment, and three short days later, he unconditionally surrenders at Appomattox Courthouse. So there's a house there. It's the McLean Farmhouse. Lee met with Grant there, and he signed surrender right there, and that marks the end of the American Civil War. All right, so everybody on the same page? So when God is now connecting the bloodshed of abortion with the bloodshed of the African... Look, make no mistake, a lot of people, a lot of smart people will try to make a lot of arguments about why we fought the Civil War. They'll make economic arguments, all kinds of things, but just go into the Lincoln Memorial with me and I'll show you on the north wall. It's inscribed in stone. The president's second inaugural address, he knew exactly what the war was about. By the end of that war, by the end of 620,000 people dying on the battlefield, they knew it was about slavery. Make no mistake, okay? And so God be, was speaking to us in the dream, connecting the bloodshed of abortion with the bloodshed of the African and that injustice and how he felt about that. Well, that's very sobering to us. And that dream has framed our prayers for the last almost 13 years as we've contended in prayer for the courts of America. As Will said, the same court that overturned the power of Dred Scott can turn, overturn the power of Roe v. Wade. Okay? It's why we're contending for the courts. And so I want you to now fast forward with me to 2012. In 2012, actually, let, let's, uh, let's show you a picture here. Go to the next one. You see an illustration here of Lee surrendering to Grant. Go ahead and go to the next page. This is actually a picture of Lou and I. See, see on Uh, In 2012, Lou said, we're gonna do the call, one of these big prayer gatherings in Virginia. He goes, but we can't do that until we go pray at Appomattox. We'd never been. So he flies into town, we load up in the van, and we go to Appomattox Courthouse, and you can go in the house where Lee surrendered. And it's, guys, it's so close to Charlottesville. Just just a few miles, really. And uh, we went in there, we prayed for revival in America, we prayed for the ending of abortion, we prayed for President Obama. And as we were leaving, we walked into a visitor's center, and there was a small bookshelf, and Lou and I uh, were standing side by side, and he grabs the first book off the shelf that catches his eye, it's this one, and he opens it to the first random page. Go ahead and go to the next slide. He opens it to this illustration. It's called The Last Shot, The Battle of Lockett's Farm, and he's like, whoa, what's this? I didn't know. So I, began, I bought the book. I began to research this. I'm having another one of these holy moments where you're hearing your name called. This seems significant. This can't be a coincidence, right? So I began to research it. What I found out was that when Lee fought that last battle of the Civil War, he fought it in the front yard of a family named Lockett. So as I said, this is a holy moment for me. This seems very significant. My team and I are trying to figure this out. What does this mean, right? We're trying to find the meaning in it. And... Um, About that time, my brother was using some online genealogy tools, and he got the breakthrough. He came to my house, and he began to share the research with me, and he's like, I got us all the way back to 1645. We came in as settlers in Virginia. I said, have I got a Virginia story for you? And I began to share with him this story about the Civil War, and he stops me, and he says, that's not that place down by Sailor's Creek, is it? I said, that's exactly where it is. He said, I just found the documentation on it. That was our family. So what I'm telling you is that after a decade of praying this Appomattox courthouse dream, we found out that the last battle of the American Civil War was fought in my family's front yard. In fact, one of the history books, they talk about how when... Uh, Lee turns the cannons around to make his last stand. The Union army comes through the trees and they're in the backyard, the Confederates are in the front yard. And the book said this, as you can see, the locket house was all that stood between the two armies. It's a picture of intercession. And I'm telling you right now, this is what's most needed in America, in the church today, is that we would be a part of that house, that we would stand in the gap. Somebody's gotta got get in between the fighting brothers that are trying to tear each other apart. Go ahead and go to the next slide. Just so you don't think I'm exaggerating, that's the house and that's the historical marker. Here Lee fought his last battle. Now, if we could zoom in, I could show you that the house is still riddled with bullet holes. It still bears the scars. Look, if you're gonna be in this house, you're gonna take some hits, but it's worth it. It is worth it because at the end of that battle, that house became a hospital for both sides and the books say that the floorboards of the house were stained with the blood of both North and and south. It became a hospital for both. We want to be in that house. Amen. So I uh, was stunned by all of this. And so I did what any red blooded intercessor would do. We pile our team in a van and we're going to go find that house. So we show up. The house is still standing. And I met the man who owns the house now, and he invites us to come into the house, into the living room. Go ahead and go to the next slide. I was stunned when I walked in, and framed and hanging on the wall was the Lockett family tree. I get out my brother's research. It's a hand and a glove. That was our family. And he says, what do you know about your family? <laughs> Not much. He says, well, some of you guys left here and went to Kentucky. I got that part. And some left and they went, it was a massive family and they would spread out. Some went to Alabama. And he said this, he says, and some went to Louisiana. And some, because of clerical errors, they would even change the spelling of the name and drop one of the T's. And I'm thinking that, that, that can't be possible, right? That can't be true. And so I gather up all these things and I come down here to Dallas and I spend the day with Will and his family, and we just lay this out and we just weep over all of these pieces to this puzzle and marvel at the, the the masterful craftsmanship of God. Will, why don't you come back up here and join me?
0: So Matt comes to comes to Dallas and shares that with me. And remember, the last thing I asked him was. How did y'all spell it with two T's of one? Now it's not about the T's now. And we didn't know that he had lockets that had gone down to, to the south, and especially towards, to, to Louisiana. So we did a lot of research. He's a researcher. I'm a researcher. And we like to try to poke holes and stuff. Right? After a year of research, we realized this. Listen, Matt's family is the family that owned my family where this kettle came from. So think about it. Here's my family in Lake Providence, praying for the ending of slavery. And then up at the farmhouse of the people who used to own them, Locker's Farmhouse, slavery comes to an end in their front yard. But then, because he's the God of the past and the future, he takes two people from those same family lines and weave them together to war against injustice in their day and to cry out for awakening in their time. And so the folks of the town of Lake Providence just happened to call me around the same time we started learning this information and really felt confident from the research that we had empirically that what we had was true. And so we actually went back to Lake Providence, and this is the land that we found there. There's this place called Sutton Plantation. My oldest known family member was a man named Isaac and In the 1870 census, he said he was originally from Virginia but was sent from Virginia down to Lake Providence, Louisiana. And we saw that he was at a plantation called Sutton Plantation. That is where Sutton Plantation used to be. So think about it. There on Sutton Plantation there, there was a prayer meeting that night. Mm-hmm. Where Christian slaves snuck in to a barn that was on that property. And used this kettle prop to pray for my freedom and for your freedom too. And then uh, you can go to the next slide. So, uh, and then the, the town of Lake Providence, actually, they actually gave us the key to the city. The mayor did. <laughs> Listen, God is releasing keys to Providence in this hour.
1: Last year was actually a very significant year, too, as we were getting close to April 9th. Uh, Will and I got the privilege, we were invited to participate in a prayer gathering on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. Now, remember, this is where we first met. But God began to tie together so many different elements that, that we just really couldn't even imagine how profound they would be. We met on the spot. You want to share that?
0: Yeah, so the deal is this. You have to think about it. I was led to the Lincoln Memorial because of a dream. Matt was led to the Lincoln Memorial because of a dream. To the place where the dreamer Martin Luther King said is, I have a dream speech. I have a dream that one day the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners could sit together at the table of brotherhood. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe the dream wasn't poetry. Maybe it was prophecy. Yeah. Maybe the dream doesn't, he didn't just have a dream. Maybe the dream has us. Yeah. Maybe God is serious about his son's prayer of John 17 and answer it where he says that we will be one so that the glory will come. So what? That the world will believe.
1: Oh, at this. Yeah. As, as God began to unpack even more and more detail, see, imagine how I felt when I found out that my part of the story was that of the slave owner. But then once the keys got turned and the, the genealogy got locked, I went back further. What happens then if you go before, far, like a long time before the Civil War, I go back six generations, and you know what I find? I find a Methodist circuit rider named Daniel Lockett who rode through Virginia and carried the message of abolition, See, here's the thing about the circuit riders. Yeah, they were preaching salvation, but they carried more than Bibles and hymnals in their saddlebags. They carried what's called a manumission form. You can see the Methodist circuit riders believed that God, they feared God would depart from them if they did not pick up the message of abolition of slavery. And so they would ride through the countryside and they would carry the gospel, but it's not just a gospel of salvation. It's a gospel of the kingdom. And it is for freedom that Christ sets us free. And they would give their altar calls and people would get saved and they would get out the manumission forms and give them the opportunity to set the slaves free on the spot. What you find at that moment in history, in the small window where they're riding uh, through the whole mid-Atlantic region, everywhere the circuit riders went, freed slaves, this freed slave population exploded. 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 That is the power of the gospel of the kingdom. So see, my legacy isn't just that of being the son of a slave owner. Yeah, I go back further and I find the work of a man named Daniel Lockett, who was riding through the country, preaching a message of freedom. And I'm locking in on that,
0: right? So in everybody's family, we have what they call generational blessings, generational curses, right? I have family members who were a mess. I got folks in prison. I've done stupid stuff, right? But I have these folks back here who are praying for revival in the end of slavery. Man, had folks in this family who were, of course, owned slaves. We also had people in this family talk slaves secretly, how to read and write, and also took a stand for abolition. So in other words, what these generational curses and blessings represent, they represent dominating themes, right? blessing and curse and what they represent what everybody likes to call now narratives they represent storylines so what God is shouting to America right now is this what storyline do you want to be a part of the healing or the hurt the blessing or the curse what storyline are we going to be a part of in this hour Yeah. yeah yeah so go to the next slide for me so last year April the 9th we actually had the opportunity to be a part of a prayer gathering and the great-great-great-great-granddaughter of Dred Scott, Lynn Jackson, and you see there, she was there at the prayer gathering. Next slide. And also at that prayer gathering was the great-great-great-great-grandson of Kunta Kente, Alex Haley's son was there at this prayer gathering. And also uh, Alveda King was there and Bernie's King, Dr. King's daughter. And on the anniversary when Dr. King was buried, we did a foot washing at the Lincoln Memorial where we met with this kettle pot. Contending for healing of the race issue.
1: It can't get crazier than that, right? Oh, but wait, there's more. <laughs> As I began to uncover the history, what I found out was after the Civil War, uh, you know, even though slavery had ended, it still wasn't very popular for uh, uh, former slaves to learn how to read and write in the South in particular. And so... Uh, there around the Lockett plantation, there was a, a former slave who was trying to teach her young son how to read. And, and she was doing it in secret because she feared that there would be consequences if they caught her doing that. And so in walks Lucy Lockett, also a member of my family there near the Lockett's farm. She walks in and catches her, but instead of there being consequences, she says, what you've chosen to do is very wise. And so she, be, she gives her assistance and begins to oversee tutoring this young boy, Robert, in how to read and write. Go ahead and go to the next slide. Robert Moton, in his autobiography, recounts this story of how Lucy Lockett taught him to read. He went on to become president of Tuskegee Institute. He replaced Booker T. Washington. He was an educational advisor to presidents. And in 1922, he gave the dedication of the Lincoln Memorial.
0: Where Dr. King gave this speech and we first met. Yes. Dr. King said, I have a dream that one day that the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners could sit together at the what? Table of Brotherhood. You know the first time that table of brotherhood is mentioned? In the upper room. We are prophetically here in this church called the upper room to call America, call the American church back to the upper room. Because it was in that same upper room where there was a Lord's Supper. There were people of every tribe, every tongue, every language. They were all together in one place. And then suddenly the Holy Spirit fell. And listen to what happens. We all understand the part about how they begin to hear each other and speaking in other languages. But you know what the most powerful thing that happened? All that unity, all that diversity. The powerful thing is this: they begin to they begin to understand one another. We get understanding when we come to the table of brotherhood in the place of prayer in the upper room. God is calling America back to the upper room.